You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. Wonderful. Well, we come to our Bible reading now, and our Bible reading this morning is the whole of chapter 4, 16 verses of chapter 4. So let me read here God's word to us. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. Now the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you, that is Timothy, put these things before the brothers, You'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Or may God bless the teaching and the preaching of his word to us this morning. Well, we continue um, going through the book of 1 Timothy and the the passage, the chapter which we've had read breaks really into two main parts. You'll see there's three paragraphs, but the the first chunk there in your sheets, uh, we read of the great challenge of false teaching in the church. And those second two paragraphs really are about the great need for godly teaching, godly teachers in the church. Paul's instruction to Timothy. And so uh, we've seen that all through the letter that godly teaching is to be that which builds us up, which actually edifies the church. 
But there's this great challenge uh, in Ephesus and in the church today that actually it's, it's while that the church is being built up in godliness, that there's also uh, attacks. Satan attacks his church and seeks to destroy and to pervert and to twist that teaching. It's the challenge of false teaching within the church. You might think of in Nehemiah's day when the, the walls of the temple were, sorry, the walls of, of Jerusalem were, were built up, but in the face of many attacks which were coming uh, from uh, on, onto that building program. So, that, so Timothy has to fight the good fight of faith and to edify the church, but in the face of much false teaching. And so this chapter has got direct application to, to ministers, to pastors. It's uh, very challenging to, to myself as, as I read it, and as Paul lays these things on Timothy. Um, but there's also a, a call for all of us, all of us who need to receive and to believe the truth of the gospel. All of us who need to be uh, aware of uh, attacks and false teaching within the church. So we're going to look first off at these first five verses. Uh, I think about half the sermon is on these first five verses, so just a, a, a warning or perhaps an encouragement there. Um, so the great challenge here of false, false teachers within uh, the church. So Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Now, Paul, he's, he's already warned. If you think back to Acts 17, he's already warned the, uh, the Ephesian elders, the leadership of the church, uh, that after his departure, that false teachers would arise in the church. What he calls savage wolves would come in to seek to devour the flock. Uh, people from within their own number, the, the elders there, and from within that, that church community itself, people are rising up, teaching in the church uh, twisted things. So he's already given that warning some, uh, probably some 10 years before. So he already knew that this would happen. So it seems that there's been some, some revelation already by the Holy Spirit to, to Paul and to perhaps the, the other apostles. And it's interesting that uh, Jesus himself had warned of a great time of tribulation and falling away and of false teachers rising up in the church. Jesus himself had warned of that in, um, in Matthew, Matthew 24. And so he seemed, Paul seems to be uh, referring to, to that, that the Holy Spirit has warned uh, the apostles and, of, and it's probably a particular period of apostasy in the church, which was warned about around the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. There seemed to be a particularly bad, uh, well, there was tribulation and there was apostasy at that time as Satan attacked the church. But in many ways, that just sets the pattern for what Satan always does in the church. The gospel goes out, there is progress, the, the, the word of God increases, and then there is this uh, counterattack and Satan comes in and seeks to pervert and twist the gospel from within the church. Remember the, the early days in the book of Acts, the, there was violence and persecution from sort of outside the church. But then in a way more terrifying, Satan seeks to get inside the church and twist the doctrines of the church from, as it were, from the inside out. 
I mean, no, that's just abundantly clear, isn't it? It explains a lot of church histories. We look around the world, we see the great progress of the gospel, but then coming in great, uh, great movements in, in a way of just hypocritical teachers and liars coming into the church. Think of, think of places like Africa, we've got great, in a way, great progress of the gospel, but then enormous movements of sort of prosperity teaching and people coming into the church and making profit of that and leading people astray. So everywhere you see there's progress in the gospel, but then we are taught to be aware that there will be these counterattacks in many ways. And we see corruption in the church all through the world, don't we, and through history. Well, what does Paul say about these teachers, those rising up in Ephesus? Well, he calls them, for a start, he calls them hypocritical liars hypocritical liars. Remember the hypocrites? Think of, uh, well, it roots back in, in Greek tragedy. The hypocrites were those who would wear masks on a stage. So these teachers, they, they wear a mask. They're in the church and they look kindly. They, they look like they want to bring blessing and, and love Christ's flock. And they come with care and concern and smooth words. But behind the mask, it's a different story. They're actually in it for something else. They're in it for their own gain, for sex, for position, for money, for whatever. Uh, but outside, it doesn't look like that. Well, you think, well, how can they do that? <laughs> doesn't their conscience start and smart at them? Well, Paul says, actually, their consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. So our consciences, that God-given faculty, when they're working correctly, um, it's uh, that they keep us from sin. That if we're, our conscience are instructed by the word of God and they warn us from sin. And, and, and if we sin, it's like putting your hand on a, a hot stove where God convicts us that this, this is wrong. We draw back. But the, the image here, these people, there, their consciences have been seared. They've quieted the voice of their conscience and they've become insensitive, dulled to that pain. So they, uh, their conscience has been, been seared and they're teaching lies, and it no longer bothers them. And then we see the content of their teaching, verse 3. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. So they're still in, obviously in positions of authority in the church. They're forbidding things. They're commanding things. They're laying commands on God's people. They're happy to do that. And the danger is, isn't it, that people will take that that young believers actually, they hear these people in positions of authority, they seem to know what they're talking about, and the flock are just taking it. They're taking these commands, and they're, they're being obedient to their leaders because, well, that, that's what they should be doing. But they're teaching things which are not in the Bible, teaching things which are contrary to the Bible. So you see how much we, we need to learn the scriptures to guard ourselves and so that we might be guarded from um, those in positions of authority within the church who abuse that authority. That's why we're given the scriptures. It's, it's why it's wonderful. We've got the whole Bible. We've got the pastoral epistles. So that we can, if someone's standing at the front saying things which aren't in the Bible, then we can, we have freedom to say, well, this isn't in the, in the scripture. It's not in the scriptures. So we see that, that explains why then Paul moves on and says the great need for teaching and preaching is to guard the flock and to protect the flock from these hypocritical teachers, those who are seeking to take advantage of the flock. And that is the great need around the world is for, we need evangelists and these movements of the gospel. But then we need Bible teachers actually teaching the solid truth of the gospel to protect the flock and to build them up so that the flock of Christ are not exploited. 
And so they're coming up with these random rules and commands, and, and we need that. We need not only to be guarded against those in ecclesiastical authority, but those in civil authority as well who make commands which should need to be resisted. Um, so, but these people, they're coming up with commands and rules, not in the Bible. And interestingly, um, it's a sort of asceticism, isn't it? They're commanding people to give up certain foods. They're forbidding marriage. And on one level, all this might sound very uh, holy and very uh, devoted. It might, might be that they're sort of holding up the true path of holiness and spirituality. Um, but it's interesting. It's interesting to sort of compare this. It's quite similar to Satan's original strategy. Satan came and he tries to corrupt the original creation, doesn't he? He tries to ruin marriage. And then he made all sorts of, uh, said all sorts of things about what, what they were to eat or not eat. And here Satan comes in. He comes in to cor corrupt the church, tries to, to ruin the institution of marriage, tries, and then tries to come up with these, um, these commands about food, all sorts of things um, about what they are not to eat. So Satan comes in, these false teachers come in, and they're seeking to twi twist the loving commands of our creator. And so, um, and Satan here, he's seeking to ruin and corrupt God's new creation. And so Paul's answer really is to reassert the goodness of God's creation as it is revealed in scripture. These are foods, he says, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And again, verse four, everything created, everything God created is good. Where's he getting that from? Well, Genesis. Yeah, it's good, 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 very good. He's going back to those original doctrines of creation, the goodness of God, the creator, and it is to be received with thanksgiving because consecrated by the word of God and prayer that the word of God has told us these things are good and we give thanks to them in prayer. So, um, a proper, and a proper response to all of God's good gifts is, is thanksgiving, isn't it? So unbelief would seek to suppress the truth of God and would not give thanks to him, Romans 1. But uh, faith in Christ, faith in God, we just we give thanks for the good gifts of a loving creation. Thanksgiving for the abundance of all things, thanksgiving for our, our church family, for our families, for our, our marriages, for all the blessings that God has given us, all those ordinary blessings that he pours into our lives day by day. We're to be thankful for these and to know that God blesses us in the ordinary path of ordinary life. We don't need to seek some super spiritual path to find a true path of holiness. Holiness is worked out uh, in our ordinary daily lives. Godliness, as it might, might be said, gets the, gets the washing on the line and, and godliness gets the roast potatoes into the oven. It's a very, we see in 1 Timothy, holiness and godliness is just very practical. It's worked out at a practical level. You have high Christology and then practical godliness and holiness, enjoying God's good gift. And actually, throughout 1 Timothy, uh, Paul is just reasserting the goodness of God's original creation. It's one of the great themes of the letter. Actually, even in 1 Timothy 6, 17, where he's warning about uh, the love of money, and putting our hope in riches, he said, Paul says this, he says, he talks of God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. It's amazing, isn't it? The goodness of God, our creator. 
And the, the false teachers want to come in and mess all this up, say, oh, no, 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 you've got to give up this, you've got to have married, oh, it's not truly spiritual. They're wanting to mess up and corrupt these things. And Paul is wanting just to reassert the goodness of God and ordinary lives of uh, Christians. Um, and again, I think of the early church in, in, in the book of Acts. They shared their meals with gladness and sincerity of heart. They received the gospel and they shared meals together, and they just rejoiced together in the goodness of their creator. They enjoyed the forgiveness of sins and all the abundance that God has given them. So Paul's answer to the false teaching is to reassert the goodness of God's creation as revealed in Scripture, and he wants Timothy, who's been brought up with this stuff, to point this, these things out. So verse 6, if you point these things out, the brothers, you'll be a good minister of um, Christ Jesus. Well, that slips onto the next paragraph there, but I think that can be attached to the previous one too. Um, being trained, literally nourished up in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So Timothy has been brought up in this, been taught by his mother, his grandmother, but those in front of him, those brought into the church, they hadn't necessarily learned these things. They need to be taught of the goodness of God. Well, Satan seeks to corrupt the church. Um, he sought that then. He seeks to do this in every age. I suppose a, a classic example would be the, the Reformation, where you see that the, before the Reformation, times of great darkness, it was forbidden for, for priests to be married, and there were all sorts of laws about food that you couldn't, or food that you couldn't eat, eat, and all sorts of fasts which have been introduced. And the, the reformers came in, they rediscovered the, good, the gospel, rediscovered the goodness of God's creation, and, and they, and they got, began to get married. married. And, and the, um, the nunneries and the monasteries um, closed down, and the nuns and the, the monks got, got married and had, had children. There's this wonderful joy in what happened there. And they you know, ate sausages on Fridays because they could, because where in the Bible does it say you can't? So there's this great exuberance of joy as they realized that many of the commands that had been put on them were just commands that had been put on them. And they needed to resist those commands and embrace, actually, the goodness of our creator. Well, that was, and, and then after darkness came light. After darkness, light, the light of the gospel, the light of the scriptures. Well, we live in different times to this, though, don't we? I mean, none, none of us are worrying about whether we should have sausages on Friday or not, um, or whether we should go and live in a, in a monastery. Um, but we do live in, in different ways in times of darkness, don't we? Satan attacks the church in every age. Um, the culture around us just suppresses the truth that God created all things. That truth is buried, isn't it? We don't believe that. We, we think, well, the world just, just emerged by accident. And uh, here we are as a chance of just chance processes. You know, you know, random mutation, natural selection. We're just here. And so we don't give thanks. We've suppressed the truth of God as creator. We've suppressed the truth of what it means to be male and female, made in his image. Marriage, well, that's no longer good, is it? That's a sort of a an old structure of patriarchal oppression. We can do away with that if we want human flourishing. We, we've sort of suppressed and pressed down the truth. Um, so what do we need? Well, we need a reassertion uh, from the scriptures of the goodness of God and his original creation order and his good purposes in Jesus Christ and the teaching of the scripture to break forth with fresh power, with fresh Penetration in our own day 
and generation. We need that, don't we? We need to pray for that and pray that God would strengthen us and raise us up in doing that. And so we live in many ways in times of great darkness. How do we live? Well, with thankfulness to God, our creator, with, uh, in a way with defiant thankfulness for uh, marriage and family life and our, our life together, um, with thankfulness for the food uh, on our table. So we meet together just with thankfulness to God, our creator, and all the blessings that he has given to us. But to sort of have that kind of uh, defiant thankfulness, we need, uh, we need the foundation of the scriptures. We need the godly teaching to chase away, as it were, the lies. And then, so Paul moves on. We've seen the great challenge of false teachers in the church. Uh, and then there's this great need for godly teaching, godly teachers, and godliness in the church. So um, he says to Timothy, um, verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. And then verse 8, he's saying this is the th- actually the third of the trustworthy saying. Remember in uh, book of 1 Timothy, we've had these trustworthy saying. The first one was Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This first trustworthy saying. Then you had the other trustworthy saying about if anyone desires the office of a, obviously desires a noble task. The noble task um, is trustworthy saying. Well, this is the, um, the godliness trustworthy saying. Uh, and it's basically it's verse 8. It says this. While bodily training, and the, the, the verb he's using is the verb... Um, or gymnazo is the word from which we get gymnastics. While bodily training, physical training, is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. Holds promise of the present life and the life to come. So Paul uh, lived in a context where uh, physical training, the Olympics, all this sort of stuff, was a big deal in the ancient world, as it is a big deal in our world. So there are many in that culture. That is what they would pursue. In the, in the Greco-Roman world, they would, they would go for this in a big way, all the athletic competitions. They would do it naked. Um, but they, they were just, there was massive in that culture. And Paul comes along. It's one of those trustworthy sayings. He says, yeah, bodily training is of some value. It's a bit of a letdown, isn't it? You might, you might try that if you, if you sort of run into a friend who's just done his third ultra marathon or Iron Valley. So, well, you know, well done. You know, bodily, bodily training is of some value. It's a, it's, a, it's a real letdown, isn't it? But godliness is a value for all things. Now, we may, some of us may need to hear the first half. Actually, bodily training, Paul says, is of some value. You know, it is. You know, your doctor will tell you that. It is. Some exercise is good. Raising your kids, actually, some ex- that's, it is of some value. Let's not neglect that or say it's not. But godliness of value for all things, this life and the life to come. Your physical training is not going to help you on the day of judgment. Okay? Um, so uh, godliness of great value. And then he's attaching the, these words to do with sort of saying our godliness, we need to strive for it as you would strive in an athletic sort of training competition um, context. So when he's talking about godliness, um, he's, he's adopted this word from the, from the ancient sort of classical world it was a a godliness was about due reverence to the gods and a due love and reverence to your fellow men and really so it has this broad sense of uh, love for god 
and a knowledge of God uh, informed by all the scriptures, but then that being worked out in very practical ways, worked out in our daily lives. So godliness, is saying, is of great value. And, um, and so there is this thing, we get it in 1 Timothy, um, this high uh, understanding of God being worked out in a very practical way. You have orthodoxy, right belief, and orthopraxy, right practice, going together. And train yourself for godly, godliness, he says to Timothy, as one uh, well, Richard Baxter, speaking to uh, a Puritan minister, speaking to ministers, said, uh, study hard, for the Bible is deep and your brains are shallow. He's saying, actually, it's hard, it's hard work um, to grow in godliness. Now, th this is not about salvation by works, but it's about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And, and Paul's, he's using this image of discipline and hard work for growth in godliness. You're not going to reach the Olympics by sitting on the couch, and you're not going to reach a life of godliness in the home or as a pastor by just letting it happen to you, and letting the Spirit do his work. It's actually uh, need to be pursued in this idea of training. And, and Paul, in 2 Timothy, is often using images of hard work for the pastoral ministry, and particularly he uses the image of a soldier or a farmer or a workman. Uh, for the pastoral ministry. And then he's talking here about saying, for this, uh, to this end, we toil and strive. So he's actually saying, look, this path is hard work. The path of godliness is difficult because of our sinful nature, because of our forgetfulness. Uh, we need to, to actually strive in the strength of God towards ordinary godliness. Um, and it seems to take a long time, doesn't it, to grow in godliness. For this end, we toil and strive, he says, because we've set our hope on the living God, who is the saviour of all people, especially those who believe. And we sometimes stumble over that uh, a little bit. And um, when he's saying um, the, the saviour of all people, it's God who is the saviour, not Caesar, not not the state, it's God who's the saviour. He's the saviour of all people. As Paul looks over the whole world, he sees the Romans and the Greeks and all the different tribes, all the different nations. He's saying all people without uh, distinction, not all without exception. And I think he's speaking of the blessings of the gospel going out broadly to all people and then saying, well, actually, especially those who believe. So ultimately, it's only those who believe who are to share in the saving benefits of Christ and the life of the world to come, but the blessings of the gospel uh, do flow out more broadly than that in this life. And so um, he's um, encouraging Timothy in this life uh, of godliness and saying, verse 11, command and teach these things. Other things are being taught in the church, and he's zeroing in, actually, command and teach godliness teach the scriptures. This is the path for Timothy to, to run in. And then this, this last section, um, this last paragraph, where he looks more specifically at his ministry of teaching. But interestingly, even in this bit, you'll notice how uh, he speaks of Timothy's teaching the scripture, but also his practical godliness of life, how these things go together. So look at it. He says, well, let no one despise for your youth, but set them an example in speech, um, 
in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So practical holiness with regards to, to every area of life. And then until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, exhortation and teaching. And so he's to devote himself to this. You remember the, the early church, that the believers were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Well, the flip side of that is you need a ministry which is devoted to actually to the teaching and the preaching of the scriptures so that the whole church can then grow up together into maturity. And it's interesting, he says, uh, the public reading of scripture, uh, the Christian communities, they weren't mystery religions hidden behind closed doors of sort of privatized faith, but it was faith for the public square there in Ephesus. It was to go out broadly. The church has the pillar and buttress of the truth in the midst of that community. And then he says, verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given for you by prophecy uh, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And so I think there's two things we see here. There's this extraordinary call and gifting which came by prophecy. So this is a little bit like in Acts 13.1, so where Paul and Barnabas are set aside by the Holy Spirit, and that came by the prophets who are in the church of Antioch. Uh, and Timothy, if you like, he, he sort of straddles the apostolic and the post-apostolic age. So he was set aside by these specific uh, words of prophecy. But then there's this mention of this body of elders, uh, literally the, the presbytery. Uh, Timothy was to be set apart for ministry. He had hands laid on by the presbytery. And as a, as a Presbyterian, of course, I'd love to jump up and down a bit on this, on this one. So he wasn't sort of just set aside by that, the local congregation, but there was a broader uh, accountability structure in place. There was uh, the, the, the presbytery, the elders gathered from different local churches that had been involved. Um, so verse 15, be diligent, he says, in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Uh, practice these things. He said, immerse yourself in them that people may see your progress. And I think there's an, a challenge here and an encouragement, great challenge for ministers to be diligent in their work and not to be lazy. Uh, but also somewhat of an encouragement is to do that so that people may see your progress. So that actually Timothy didn't have to have everything all sorted out in his first sermon out of the gate. But over the years, people would actually see that actually he's growing in the scriptures and he's uh, growing in the ministry. And it's very humbling when you sort of go back to, to old sort of ministers who used to, used to hear me preach when I was young and they'll say things like, oh, you're, you're preaching so much better than it used to be. It really is just, so, and you sort of think, really, was it, was it that? Bad, but actually, you think, well, you're glad that there is some progress at least. But Timothy was to grow in the scriptures as he gave himself to them. So bear with me, please. It's been said that um, learning to preach is a bit like learning to play the violin uh, in public. I mean, imagine that, imagine that. Uh, so practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. And then verse 16, I think it's extraordinary. Keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Persist in this. Um, but this is to Timothy. Think of the training that Timothy had. He had actually been working alongside the Apostle Paul 
for years. He was a trusted ministry partner of the Apostle Paul, sitting at his feet, all his questions. He could ask them to the, the Apostle himself. You would think Timothy would have it sorted out. But no, Timothy here is still commanded and encouraged to, to keep a close watch on his doctrine, Paul says. And if Timothy had to do that, how much more to any minister of the gospel today? There's no one who can rest upon their training. We need to continually keep us close watch. And again, it's on your teaching and on your life. These two things going together, as we see throughout 1 Timothy. And then persist in this, persevere in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Well, we know only God can save, but the Lord uses ministers of the gospel in this process. He uses means. And I think the warning here is that if Timothy veers off the path and abandons the faith and wanders off into these other teachings, that that will have a devastating effect on the flock under his care. And so it's an enormous sort of spur and an encouragement for a minister of the gospel um, to watch their life and doctrine closely because of the people under, under, that, under our care. And I think for all of us, for those in the positions of responsibility, those seeking to raise children, a spur to godliness is that actually we, God's put people under our care, um, that we, we need to pursue godliness for the sake of those that we are, are responsible for and for the, the, the people around us. So persist in them, persevere in them. Well, that is um, God's uh, call there to, to Timothy, God's call for, for the pastors. So it was a hard one for pastors again uh, this morning. Uh, but as we, we gather and bring these things to a close, uh, we've seen the, the challenge there of false teaching in the church there and, and the challenge throughout the world of Satan attacking the church. And therefore, the, really the call for godly, a godly ministry in, in the church. And, um, and I think uh, that the, the challenge... For us is well a re resilient and, and defiant thankfulness in God's good gifts, thankfulness for Christ, uh, the mediator through whom we come to God, which is then uh, then worked out in um, a life of practical godliness. And so we we, we come to God with, with thankfulness, but all of this we see as, as the the argument in in one Timothy. He's looking for. Paul is looking for an effective mission. The church is to be that temple holding out the word of God amongst the nations to the darkness of the culture all around us. So as we pursue practical godliness and as we pursue a, a teaching ministry here, our prayer is that this gospel is to go out. The church is to be a, a city on a hill, not a bunker hidden under a hill. So we might pray just for the effectiveness of the, the, the gospel as it goes out from here and that God in his mercy might use us and bless us uh, as his gospel goes out to the nations. And I think we just need to be praying in God's mercy that as he uh, establishes us and edifies us as a church here, our desire is to see other godly faithful ministries encouraged and supported and sent out. That is, that is our desire, but we really feel our weakness. So do join with us in praying for God to be blessing the ministry here and the progress of the gospel in this city and also his just provision for our nation of many who will preach and teach the truth of his gospel. Well, let's pray together as we close. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your great goodness. Thank you for your great gifts of creation. We praise you for your greatest gift of all, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was incarnate, the Virgin Mary, made man, who died on a cross for our sins, rose again from the dead, was exalted to the right hand of God, who will come again in glory. We praise the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that in your mercy we would... uh, our joy in Christ and our delight in him, that all these things would be just worked out in our homes, in our families, uh, in different relationships in the church and beyond the church. And Father, we pray that this gospel would go out in our own day and in our own generation. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S, dot co, dot U-K. 